Well, today uh, we do begin a uh, study of the book of Hebrews, and as you see in your sermon notes, I will provide an introduction uh, to the book, and uh, I do hope you did pick up a copy of the sermon notes. We will not be having any PowerPoint this morning, the reason being, if you look at your sermon notes, uh, you'll see how wordy it is, uh, just by virtue of it being an introduction, trying to lay some groundwork. Didn't really think that was uh, appropriate for PowerPoint. We'll get back to that uh, next a Sunday as we begin to go verse by verse uh, through the book. Now, uh, when I told my dear wife that I would be uh, sharing just an introduction today, uh, she was not very excited. She's not in here yet, so I can get away with this. Uh, believing that introductions tend to be maybe a little bit boring, uh, a little too academic, uh, but let me share with you, anytime you study any book of the Bible, uh, you need to grasp a, a basic understanding of the purpose of the book, uh, the central theme of which, in which the book evolves around, and just an overview of where you see the, the, the flow and how all the parts uh, fit together. Uh, I am very, very excited. Here's my dear wife. You don't even know what I said about you, do you? Okay, you'll just have to wait to the end of the service and one of them will tell on me. So, uh, I, I am very excited about our study of Hebrews. And b- before I actually uh, begin the introduction, let me share with you why I am so excited. Uh, as we're going to see, Hebrews was written to a Jewish Christian community whose world had literally been shaken by an increasing hostile society, so much so that their faith was wavering, and they were in danger of going backward spiritually. Uh, They found it uh, more expedient, more comfortable. They found it safer just to retreat in their Christian faith instead of advancing to pay the cost of commitment to Christ. And would you not admit that we see this same retreat in the larger church today here in America? Uh, We discover that there is a widespread lack of wholeheartedness, perseverance, and progress in the Christian faith. I mean, how many Christians never get beyond the basic knowledge that their sins are forgiven and they have a home in heaven? How many Christians fall back into worldliness or legalism or indifference? Why is it that so many Christians lack the power to stand for Christ, to advance in their faith and to press on into maturity? What is the teaching that is needed to revive the Christian life So through all adverse circumstances, it is able, as it says in Hebrews, to hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Not only that we start well, but we advance and we end well. Well, the answer to that question is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews remedies the problem of a backsliding Christian faith by exalting 
the infinite prize of Jesus Christ. No other book in the Bible, no other book in the Bible presents the glory and the superiority of Christ and the believer's access to Christ like the book of Hebrews. When you see all that you have in and through Jesus Christ, you realize that the value of the prize far outweighs the cost or sacrifice, and it becomes a privilege and a joy to suffer for Him. Like Paul said in Philippians 3.8, I count what? All things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So I promise the book of Hebrews will be a very exciting study, which can transform your Christian life. And so I encourage you to make every effort uh, to be present each Sunday as we go through this study. So following your sermon notes, as we look at this introduction to the book of Hebrews. First, the author. The author is unknown uh, to uh, us. Uh, He is just simply not named in the book. Now, there have been plenty of guesses over the years. Uh, Many have surmised that the apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but there are certain problems with that when you study the style of the Greek that's used in Hebrew, and you compare it to Paul's other writings, it just doesn't seem to mix. Uh, Some people have addressed that issue by saying, well, Paul wrote the book in Hebrews, and then Luke took it and translated into Greek. Uh, There have been people that say Apollos wrote the book, Aquila or Priscilla wrote the book, Peter wrote the book, Jude wrote the book, Barnabas wrote the book. Bottom line, one of the church fathers, Origen, probably said it best, only God knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, And so I won't try to uh, give you a guess, and we'll just leave it at that. But although the author is unknown to us, he was very known, well known to the community to whom he wrote and planned uh, to revisit. If you look at those, uh, you don't have to turn to them now. That's why I provided these notes, and I pray you'll take the references and uh, look at them more carefully uh, later. But uh, uh, chapter 13, the last chapter in the book, verse 19, he talks about the fact that he would be restored to them, that he's apart from them, but he'll be restored to them. Uh, That uh, verse 23, he talks about the fact that Timothy has just recently been released from prison, and that if Timothy comes, that he will be coming along with Timothy. Uh, The author identifies himself as one of the leaders of the church. Uh, Chapter 13, verses 17 and 19, it's that section where he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them as those who give watch over your souls, and let them do this with joy, not grief, because this is profitable for you. And then after he gives them that admonition, he says, pray for us. He's talking about the leaders, and notice he uses the pronoun us. He includes himself as being one of those leaders. And throughout the book, throughout the book, he reveals an intimate knowledge of their past experiences and their present circumstances. Uh, The author, as you see there in your sermon notes, writes with a pastor's heart, and he calls the book of Hebrews a word of exhortation, which in the New Testament was a common designation for a sermon. 
Uh, you may want to look at that. It's sort of an, uh, an interesting observation. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22. He says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. Notice he calls the book a word of exhortation. And if you uh, compare that with Acts 13, verse 15, we see there that uh, this is referring to uh, Paul. It says, After reading of the law and the prophets and the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation. In other words, if you have a sermon for the people, say it. And Paul stood up and motioning him with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, uh, and you who fear God, listen. And then he goes on with his message. So Hebrews is a sermon that's written from a pastor's heart, uh, as we're going to see, to a people who need his encouragement. Now look at the recipients, the recipients. Uh, Jewish Christians, and of course, uh, that is probably fairly obvious uh, by the title of the book, Hebrews. Also, the book as no other book in the New Testament, is impregnated with the Old Testament. There's at least 35 either direct quotations from the Old Testament or allusions to the Old Testament. And, of course, there's the emphasis on the tabernacle and comparing the Old and the New Covenant, how the New Covenant is better than the Old, and that uh, you're to leave the shadows of the Old that were just types and pictures of Christ, and you're now to embrace the real. So it's obvious that the book is written to Jewish Christians. And again, this is what I surmise. Uh, there would be difference, uh, differences among Bible teachers. But I believe who lived in Rome. And, and I'll give you my reasons for that. In uh, verse 24, the next to the last verse in the book, he says, uh, Greet all your leaders and all the saints, and those from Italy greet you. Now, it's obvious you could read that two ways. He could be writing from Italy. Uh, to a group outside that country and saying those from Italy greet you. But it's also possible he could be writing outside Italy, and with him there's a group of Italian believers, and they're extending their greetings to their brothers and sisters there in Italy. And that's the way I take that. But probably uh, the greater reason why I lean towards Jewish Christians in Rome is that next point. The, this finds strong support from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, where the description, and go ahead and turn there, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. Let me finish the sentence there in your note. Where the description of the persecution experienced by the recipients seems to be consistent with the hardships borne by Jewish Christians expelled by Rome, from Rome by the edict of the Emperor Claudius in 49 A.D. Look at these verses with me. Uh, verse 32. But remember, he says, the former days when after being lightened. So he said, he first, what he's saying, he's going back to their early Christian experience. He says, you remember back to your former days when you were initially enlightened. And notice he says... You endured a great conflict of suffering. And so, in other words, in their early Christian experience, there was some great conflict of suffering that they experienced. And then he describes it, partly by being made a public spectacle 
through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Now, when you go back to 49 A.D., what happened was the Jewish Christians began to share Christ within the Jewish quarters, within the synagogue goers, sharing that Jesus was the Messiah who died for their sins and He rose again. And this was not met with a great positive response. Matter of fact, it started riots within the Jewish quarters as the uh, non-believing Jews began to attack the Jewish Christians. And so Claudius, to remedy to this, he issued this edict just to expel the, what he, who he considered the, the instigators, and that was the Jewish Christians. And when you look at that time of persecution, uh, the, the uh, imprisonment, uh, reproaches, and ridicule, and the seizure of your property was a part of that entire time of persecution. So it just seems to fit. It just just seems to fit that this is a a Jewish Christian group in Rome that's being being written uh, to in light of the fact that it just seems to match up uh, with that period of time. Uh, Notice also in your notes the Apostle Paul acknowledged the existence of a Jewish Christian house church that met met in the home of Aquila and Priscilla who were Jews themselves. You can see that in Romans 16 where he's greeting various house churches in Rome. And uh, Aquila and Priscilla themselves were expelled from Rome by the Claudius Edict. We're clearly told that in Acts 18 verse 2. But they later returned to Rome uh, to continue their ministry. And it is very likely, it is very likely that it was to this house church, uh, the church that met in the home of Aquila Priscilla, that this, uh, that the book of Hebrews was written to. Now look at the occasion. In other words, what were the circumstances uh, around the writing of this book? Hebrews was written to Christians who had started very, very well. If you look at those references, chapter 2 talks about when they were initially uh, introduced to the gospel uh, through the disciples and embraced embraced their message by faith. Chapter 6 talks about how he uh, believes encouraging things about them concerning their salvation. Uh, We just read chapter 10, how in their early years they met this time of persecution with great faith and accepted joyfully the seizure of their property and imprisonment and reproaches. But now, they were in danger of faltering in their faith. And we see this clearly throughout the book as they begin to wrestle with the cost of commitment to Christ. And we we believe what precipitated this was a new persecution, as you see in your notes. A new persecution looms under the emperor Nero, which included imprisonment, torture, and for the first time, the possibility of martyrdom. The possibility of martyrdom. Now, uh, if those of you that know your history know that in 64 A.D. that Rome suffered a great uh, fire, uh, there are 14 major. There were 14 major districts in ancient Rome. Uh, this fire raged for three weeks before they could put it out. Uh, every single district was hit except for four. Three of the districts were literally leveled to the ground. And, of course, uh, if you're familiar with the history, 
the uh, rumor that began to be circulated was that Nero, the emperor himself, had started the fire. And so Nero, to deflect that, 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 those accusations from himself, he put the blame on the Christians. He made the Christians a scapegoat. He said they started the fire, and this uh, instigated a tremendous time of persecution uh, against believers. Like I said, that included imprisonment, torture, and the possibility of martyrdom. It was during this time that the Christians began to flee into the catacombs for, uh, for safety and for refuge. And so with the might of imperial Rome marshaled against Christians, uh, this little house church, they were scared. They were very, very scared. Some began to avoid contact with outsiders. Some even withdrew from church meetings. If you look at uh, chapter 10, verse 25, he says, Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. So some of the church members had even begun withdrawing from meeting with the assembly because of the fear of the persecution uh, that would come. Public confession of Jesus Christ could cost them their lives. And withdrawal appeared to be the expedient measure. They are described as indifferent and apathetic to God's Word. Look at Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 11. He's been giving them teaching about the uh, priesthood of Christ. And he says, concerning Him, we have much more to say. This is verse 11 of chapter 5. And it, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, and because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil." Simply put, they had grown weary of sustaining the confession of their faith in a social climate hostile to their presence. They were in danger of denying Christ to save their own lives. Now look at the purpose of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to encourage these frightened and weary members of the house church to maintain their Christian faith by keeping their eyes fixed on the supremacy of Jesus Christ, keeping their eyes fixed on the prize, on His salvation, the salvation He provides, and to warn them of the catastrophic consequences of renouncing their Christian commitment. Now look at the central theme. The central theme, the absolute necessity of not falling away from the living God. And you see that in Romans uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 12, where he says, Don't let any of you, uh, let a, a, a evil, unbelieving heart cause you to fall away from the living God, but to press on to maturity. And I believe 6.1 is probably the key verse where he says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. I believe that's the key theme in the book. Press on to maturity. Don't go backwards. You began well. Don't falter now, but you press on. And you stay true to the Lord Jesus Christ. And how? By obeying what God has spoken in His Son. That thought, the fact that God has spoken in His Son and He's speaking now, 
is, is the theme throughout the book and their need to heed God's Word, to listen to it, to obey it. That's how the book begins, verses 1 and 2. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. And then if you go to the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 25, it says, Do not refuse Him who is speaking. So that is the theme throughout the book. Don't falter. Don't uh, fall away from the living God. You're to press on to maturity, and you press on to maturity by obeying the word that God has spoken through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at key words in the book. Just a few key words. There could be others that would mention, but these are uh, three very important words. The word better. The word better is used uh, 13 times, uh, basically to show the superiority of Christ in His salvation. One of the uh, tools that the author uses throughout the book is comparison. Throughout the book, he's comparing Jesus with the angels, with uh, various Old Testament characters. He's comparing the Old Covenant against the New Covenant, how much better the New is. So this thought of the fact that uh, Jesus is better, the supremacy of Christ, the superiority of Christ is emphasized in that word. The second word, perfect, is used also 13 times either referring to our perfect standing before God or the process of maturing in our faith in Christ. And then the word eternal or forever is also used 13 times to show the permanence of Jesus Christ and the eternal life He gives to believers. And then you'll notice in your notes, combining the three words, you discover what? That Jesus Christ and the salvation He provides is better. Why? Because salvation is eternal and gives us a perfect standing before God. And only Christ can do that. And in light of that, as Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary, said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And see, that's a thought. Again, the superiority of Christ, that, he, that He's better that He provides this perfect standing before God. And, and you're given eternal life that will never end. And so in light of that, when you see what we've gained, the cost and the sacrifice just, what, pales in comparison uh, to that. Look at the style. And I think this is important to see. We've already mentioned the book of Hebrews is, is more like a sermon. Uh, it, it, it's not your typical uh, epistle or a letter like many of the other books in the New Testament. It, it, it's a sermon, and you see this reflected in the style of the book. The writer continually alternates between exposition, which elevates the superiority of Christ and the salvation He provides, and five warnings to encourage trust in God in obedience to His Word by pointing out the sad consequences if we fail to do so. And there in your notes, I've listed these five warnings. So what you have is, again, just like a sermon. This is a pastor. He's trying to encourage his people. And so he's sharing with them, and he gives exposition. He gives teaching on Christ, as we've mentioned, especially the superiority of Christ, the, the prize. And then after he gives exposition and he holds Christ up, then he applies it. And the basic application is, in light of the superiority of Christ, you need to listen. You need to heed 
the message of God's Word. You need to obey what He's telling you and not turn from it. And so there are these five warnings. They're very, very important to the book of Hebrews. And as we're going to see, we can't get into all this today. I believe these warnings are clearly to believers uh, to uh, encourage them to heed God's message and to warn them again of the consequences of failing to heed God's Word, failing to press on to maturity, uh, the consequences of faltering with that unbelieving heart and not going forward. And so let's just briefly, just real quick, just look over these uh, five warnings. The first one is drifting from the Word. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he says, For this reason, we must pay much more closer attention. Notice he says, for this reason. In other words, he's tying this back into what he just talked about in chapter 1, concerning the superiority of Christ over angels. He says, in light of his supremacy, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And so the first warning is about drifting, about neglecting, failing to appropriate God's Word. In other words, being a hearer, but what? Not a doer. The second second warning is found in chapter 3, verse 7 all the way through chapter 4, verse 13, and that's about doubting God's Word, about developing a hard heart. We won't read this entire section, but just to give you a flavor of it, he, uh, this entire section, he goes back into the Old Testament when the children of Israel came to Kadesh Barnea. And remember, they were right on the edge of the promised land. And God is saying, okay, you're to go now. You're to conquer. But did the people go? No. Remember, they became frightened. And because of their fear and because of unbelief, they disobeyed God. And as a result, they wandered, what, 40 years in the wilderness until their corpses laid on the dead. And God took that new generation into the promised land. And look at verse 7. It says, therefore, chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. As when they provoked him, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. And then verse 12, take care then, brethren, lest there should be in any of you an unbelieving, an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. So the whole thought there is... Doubting God's Word, developing this whole heart. The next one is dullness to the Word of God. And we've already read that. We won't read it again. Uh, Beginning at chapter 5, verse 11, where he says, By this time you you ought to be teachers, but hey, you're dull of hearing. You've become become sluggish, as as it says. And then the next warning you find in chapter 10, which uh, is despising God's Word. And we're talking about willful sin on the part of a believer. And uh, that reads, uh, chapter, uh, verse 26 of chapter 10, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, uh, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who is trampled underfoot 
uh, the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then the final warning is in chapter 12 where it would be defying God's Word, refusing to hear. Uh, we already alluded to this a little bit earlier, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. And His voice shook the earth then, but now He has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven." And this expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And I think, I think you can see that all of these warnings are connected. And there's one message in these warnings. And it's what? Heed God's Word. The need to heed God's Word and the consequences if you fail to do so. And notice the progression in these five warnings. If you do not heed God's Word, you're going to what? You're going to drift. It's inevitable that when you neglect God's Word, when you don't appropriate it, when you don't apply it, that you're going to drift. And as we drift from God's Word, it's inevitable that we begin to doubt God's Word. Why? Because Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by what? Hearing the Word of God. So if we begin to neglect God's Word, not appropriating it, it's soon going to lead to doubting God's Word. And doubting produces what? A hard heart. And that hard heart leads to spiritual dullness, spiritual sluggishness, which produces, again, uh, that failure to heed God's Word. And then this leads to what? A despiteful attitude. Uh, to willful disobedience, and this gradually leads to that defiant spirit, that defiant attitude which refuses to listen uh, to God. So as we close the introduction, look at the overview quickly, just the overview of the entire book. And I tried to make this very simple and not go into a a lot of detail, give you more of a broad stroke. Uh, But I've divided the uh, book into three major sections, as you see there, uh, chapters 1 through 7, the focus being Jesus, the superior Savior. And you see uh, Jesus, the God-man, who's superior to the angels. Then Jesus, the new apostle, who is superior to Moses. And then Jesus, the new leader, who's superior to Joshua. And then Jesus, the new priest, who's superior to Aaron. Again, this thought of the superiority of Christ, that He's better, that He's the prize, and we should give up all things to gain Him. And then the second section of the book beginning in chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. The focus is on Calvary, the superior covenant. And this is where, again, he contrasts the old covenant against the new covenant. We see that the new covenant has superior promises. The new covenant opens a superior sanctuary, sanctuary in heaven, giving us access to Jesus himself. The new covenant is sealed by a superior sacrifice. And of course, that's the sacrifice of Jesus who died once and for all and put away sin. And the new covenant achieves superior results. And then the last portion of the book, the focus on faith, the superior principle. 
that faith is the true response to these superior things. Faith is the appropriate response to Jesus, uh, to the promises of the new covenant. And faith has always been vindicated. And there's examples through uh, that great hall of fame of faith in chapter 11. And then faith now endures patiently looking to Jesus uh, in chapter, the first part of chapter 12. And the book ends by uh, emphasizing that faith expresses itself in practical sanctity. So again, that just provides a brief introduction of the book. And I encourage you to, uh, to take those notes and to take the time to go over that. Uh, to look up all those scripture references, I think you would greatly uh, appreciate that. Uh, you'll also notice, let me hit a practical point for those of you that are in home fellowships, I didn't have room to put any home uh, fellowship discussion questions, just ran out of room. What I would suggest, uh, the book of Hebrews is about a community, as we've seen, that's uh, beginning to waver in their faith and struggling with the cost of commitment. And the danger of going backward instead of pressing on uh, to maturity. And I think it would be very appropriate uh, to just have a very open, I trust a very transparent discussion in your home fellowship groups about our own struggles here. Uh, Why do we struggle with backsliding? Why do we often begin to lose sight of the prize and put the focus more on the cost and our faith begins to waver? And so just have a very open discussion about the struggles that that we're having in our own Christian lives, the struggles we're having with adversity, the struggle we're having with disappointment, with fear or anxiety, these these factors that can make us dull, uh, where we do not heed God's Word and where we begin uh, to drift and then begin to uh, discuss briefly uh, in your groups, well, can you see that focusing on Jesus the prize is the remedy. That is the antidote, the, 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 the primary message in the book of Hebrews. And I think that would be a wonderful discussion uh, for you to have within your home fellowship group. So again, I'm very, very excited as uh, we go forward in this study. Uh, we will begin next Sunday right in uh, chapter 1, those early verses about God speaking uh, through His Son. And I trust God's going to bless us in a marvelous way because if I could just end the way I closed... Uh, I believe that the message in Hebrews is probably the most needed message in the church uh, today. Uh, The message of Hebrews is God's remedy. It is God's antidote for a wavering, faltering faith, for a backsliding faith, as we put the focus on that beautiful prize of Jesus Christ, and as we become lost in Him, realizing that, hey, the, the, the value of the prize greatly outweighs any cost or sacrifice that is required uh, of us. And especially true of us. Keep in mind, they were facing what? Torture, imprisonment, martyrdom. That's what they were struggling with. Now, we have not struggled to that point. And we have our own struggles. uh, And where we can definitely apply this book and appropriate its truth And so I trust God will speak in a wonderful way. Father, I thank you for this brief overview and introduction. Lord, I pray that it has provided a very valuable foundation for our study as we go forward, as we see the primary purpose in the book to encourage this group of believers who were wavering, who were faltering in their faith, 
And as we see the central theme uh, to turn away from that unbelieving heart that would fall away from the... And to press on, press on to maturity and not only begin well, but to end well. And, uh, and so, Lord, give us the grace to do so as we see uh, the access we have uh, of Jesus Christ and His grace and His promises and His empowerment. For it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.